Uh, we can kind of hear something coming through, but it's like a crazy robot sound. Oh, whatever. Uh, you went back well, to robot voice. <laughs> back to the robot voice. <laughs> Still robot voice. Whatever's going on is, it's like getting worse. I, we can't even really make out what you're saying anymore. Uh, not sure what you're saying still. It's still robot voice. Should he try exiting and re-entering? Yeah. Oh, oh, there it is. Very clear. Yes. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and in a past life, I was drinking buddies with Peter Sellers. You and everyone else. That's right. I was in this life. Were you now? In, in this life? In, in what year were you born? 1932. Oh, okay. The truth finally comes out. <laughs> hmm. That may, that explains so much. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm co-host Jeremy, and I just, I don't like the sound of my own voice, guys. Have you ever heard your own voice on a recording? Have you ever had to listen back to your own voice? I just can't stand the sound of my own voice. Well, I think you need to talk to Dr. Fraser Crane. Oh, I love that you knew that. <laughs> Yes, our, our soon-to-be-revealed featured artist was one of the celebrity voices on the phone on the 90s sitcom Frasier. Accurate. And that was his shtick, saying that he didn't like his own voice, but then talking a lot. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and uh, I got to tell you guys, I, I have a new roommate. Oh? Yeah. He just moved here from China. His name's Kato. And I, I don't know if it's going to work out because I, I come home and from a long day at work and tired and I go to the fridge for a bubbly and Cato pops out. He's been hiding in there and he just wants, I should mention Cato is a martial arts expert and he just starts fighting with me. He's just trying to keep me out, you know, on my guard and up on my martial arts skills and uh, he won't stop he will just go at it for like 10 15 minutes he won't stop until the phone rings then he answers it very politely you know says cook residence and takes a message from who's ever calling and then we're good from there but then i come home the next day and it's the same thing over and over again i'm not surprised that you still have a landline yeah <laughs> That's the the real curious part of this story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I would have a landline. I'm sure that's a reference to something, but I don't know what it is. Nobody else knows what that was. Yeah, if you've seen the Pink Panther movies, then you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh. But you haven't. I haven't. Well, we also have with us today a special guest returning to the podcast for the second time. He's a musician, producer, and leader of the Hollywood Film Noirchestra, which makes him a perfect candidate to discuss our featured artist today, Henry Mancini. Please welcome Skip Heller. Thank you. And in this life, I have eaten chicken with Ima Sumek. That, that's true, <laughs> isn't it? That's, that's it well is worth true, bragging yes. about. On more than one occasion. That is just, yeah, very few people can say they've done that. I don't know. Maybe she had a lot. Maybe she had a lot of people in her band over the years. Maybe a lot of people can say they've eaten chicken with Ima Sumac. No, I know that my friend Damon Devine can say that. But yeah, I mean, it's. I, I figure as long as we're you know trotting out this life and past life stories that are somehow exceptional, Ima Sumac and chicken. <laughs> Top of the list. Love it. Yeah. Well, Skip. Uh, yeah, welcome back to the podcast. So happy to have you on again. 
And we, we said that we're, we're here to talk Henry Mancini. Which album specifically are we focusing on of the so many soundtracks and all that that's out there? Well, we're going to focus today on Mr. Lucky, which is kind of the follow-up to Peter Gunn. And I always consider it, like, to put it on kind of a B-52's timeline, Peter Gunn is the Yellow Album. This is definitely the Wild Planet, where he's covering a lot of the ground that he, he covers on the first album, but it's expanded a bit. And uh, also, it's one of the first uh, one of the first records to really put a lot of emphasis on jazz organ, which was pretty new at the time when you think about it. And in the case of this record, it's also notable because the organist is John Williams, who played piano and harpsichord on a great many Mancini records and went on to write the score for Jaws, Star Wars, and basically become the next real superstar film composer yeah. after Henry Mancini. I was going to say, yeah, that's uh, two of the major composers of the latter half of the 20th century right here on this album so well fantastic but john williams was a hell of a jazz pianist so he was on a lot of records including he, he was on exotica records uh les baxter's records he was on robert drasnan's voodoo album and just always acquitted himself beautifully as a jazz pianist and here we hear him as like one of the early interesting jazz organists yeah, he was on the Frankie Lane album that we did, Hellbound for Leather, which is probably right around from yep. the same time. This is 1960, and it's music from Mr. Lucky. We'll, we'll talk more about what that is and more about Henry Mancini is as we get into things, but we're going to start with the opening track, the title track, Mr. Lucky. <laughs> could take that track just by itself and teach an entire college course on it the way it actually opens with the french horn and then everything comes in and the way the organ is punctuating phrases and then the second verse you've got like the big trombone section that's just such a trademark of henry mancini's work and then the way he's doubling um alto flute with glockenspiel which gives it like a really kind of a sparkling, tingly star quality. It's just a little masterpiece in how to immediately create an atmosphere, but also write a tune that people can hum and whistle really good. And that's a unique thing about Henry Mancini. There are a lot of great film music writers. Jerry Goldsmith, Alex North, Maurice Charest, you know, tons of guys. But very few of them were successful as songwriters the way Mancini was. 
he a lot of his themes have become like really American standards. Whereas like I don't really know anything that Jerry Goldsmith ever wrote, for instance. And he wrote Chinatown, Planet of the Apes, a lot of Twilight Zone music. But he never wrote like a, a hit single kind of a melody that people remember. So this once again points up to why Mancini is the guy we've really put to the front of the line more than anybody, maybe since John Williams, who's also written so many memorable melodies for film. Yeah, Mancini was definitely gifted in melody in a way that I think few are. I don't think you're exactly saying something controversial. There, yeah. <laughs> That's my hot take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the first artist we featured kind of of this ilk, if I'm not mistaken, right? I'm trying to think of That's... anything else like this we featured. So it kind of makes sense to lead with lead with the best. With the master. Yeah. To me, he's to me he's almost like Curtis Mayfield or something in that once you hear him, you hear where so many things after him came from. You know, a lot of what we think of as this sound, the minute you hear Mancini, you go, oh, this is really the source material for a, a lot of subsequent excursions into the style, let's say. Yeah. There are so many imitation Peter Gunn moments that have made it into the culture. I just got off of two weeks of playing high school musical in the pit orchestra. And there's actually this one little, we call him a cue, and it's a piece of bumper music that ties one scene to the next. And it over top of where the, the actual notes are written out, it says, Peter Gunn. Like, everybody knows it. It's, it's in the lexicon. Yeah, like, that style. Do the Peter Gunn style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, Peter Gunn is like, Peter Gunn is the second most influential guitar thing of the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, when I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old playing in middle school band, Peter Gunn is one of the pieces we learned long before any of us had any idea what Peter Gunn was. <laughs> we knew that, exactly. that riff, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I actually knew it originally from Planet Claire by the B-52s. Oh, yeah. And then I kept reading reviews of the B-52s that kept mentioning Peter Gunn, and I found a copy of the album, and I just went crazy for Henry Mancini and collected... Basically, any of his album covers that looked like the people in the movie had short, cool 1950s hair, I went and got those records. Well, yeah, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what Mr. Lucky was. Mr. Lucky was a television series that was essentially the kind of riding on the coattails of the success of Peter Gunn. Uh, it was Blake Edwards, and, who was the uh, big influential writer director producer it, that was his series and he had had mancini score peter gunn and so you know they get mr lucky is the next in these series it was uh it was a cbs adventure drama that aired from 1959 to 1960 so it was a short run it starred television actor john vivian as a professional gambler an honest professional gambler with extraordinary <laughs> luck and he Ran a floating casino on his ship, the Fortuna, and uh, Ross Martin, who later starred as Artemis Gordon on the Wild Wild West TV series, played his sidekick. It was really popular, but I couldn't find a good explanation for why it was canceled after one season. There were 34 episodes, and uh, there, there's two. This is the first of two related soundtracks that came out connected to it. There's also... Yeah, there's the Mr. Lucky Goes Latin. Yeah, which that came out in 61. As far as I can tell, the show was done by then. But the hey, that Mancini connection. And Mr. Mr. Lucky Goes Latin has a tune called uh, Lujan, which is used in The Big Lebowski. And at the time, it made a big enough sensation that it had lyrics put to it called Slow Hot Wind. I think that's on the first Sergio Mendes Brazil 66 album. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's kind of, I saw that that was one of the most popular tracks on Henry Mancini's Spotify was Lujan. Yeah. At this point in his career, Mancini was really, uh, to extend the gambling metaphor, he was rolling sevens every time he came up. He was really, but I think probably the reason the TV show went away was because Look at what Blake Edwards does in 1962. He really hits feature films. That's true, yeah. And to to basically make it out of what television back then was seen almost as like 
the lesser medium. Yeah. And he went from, you know, uh, these, these very sort of glamorous, jazzy urban television shows to Days of Wine and Roses, Experiment and Terror. And uh, Blake Edwards has had just such an amazing, amazing career. And for the most part, with Mancini as the guy putting the music to it all. And I, I, I always looked at the Blake Edwards-Henry Mancini relationship the same way I do the Fellini-Nina Rota relationship or the uh, Hitchcock-Bernard Herman relationship. Yeah, it could even be David Lynch and Angelo Badalamente. Yeah, although, I mean, Lynch and Badalamente didn't have uh, as chronologically long a relationship because the the relationship between Mancini and Blake Edwards, well, the first Mancini all original score is Touch of Evil, and then the next thing is Peter Gunn. That's fifty nine, and all the way into like uh, what was the movie? The movie called Sob, I think, with Julie Andrews. Yeah, way down the line, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, like through ten, through all of it, Mancini was was Blake Edwards' ride or die guy. You know, he managed to change with the times in in a way that was really suitable. And Mancini did work with other directors, you know, Stanley Doan and some other people. But I think the, the Mancini-Blake Edwards relationship is, you know, that's the one that, that defines both of them. And that's really where the, you know, Peter Gunn, Mr. Lucky, Moon River, as great as Hitari was, you know, Howard Hawks. Nobody really thinks about that one as much, even though the hit from Atari, Baby Elephant Walk, has become it's basically like the stereotype for every sports mascot since 1960 whatever. And then of course there's the Pink Panther, which is just <laughs> beyond iconic. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, iconic is such an, a badly used word because people use it now to mean anything famous, but the least famous thing that you're allowed to really call iconic would be like the cover of Abbey Road. The Golden Arches are iconic, you know. <laughs> the cover of Abbey Road is iconic, you know. The but uh, anything short of that is not iconic, you know. Coca Cola is iconic. Well, the Pink Panther kind of goes in there. Yeah, it's aside from Star Wars, it's probably the iconic piece of film music of the second half of the 20th century. Absolutely. And it had a whole second life with hip-hop sampling in the 80s and 90s, too. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that we'll get to when we when we do Floating Pad is how much emphasis Mancini was putting on percussion as a way to sort of drive the musical narrative. And the hip-hop guys were re had a lot to do with bringing Les Baxter's music back to the fore, bringing Mancini's music back to the fore, Extra Bay by Ema Sumac is all over hip hop. Mm. You are so right that you are like, we could do a whole show just on this. <laughs> I just want to go back real quick. I had read earlier as to why Mr. Lucky was canceled. They had one major sponsor, which I didn't write down. They were like a soap company. And they took issue with the theme of the main character running a, a floating gambling ship. So halfway through the series, they forced him to change it to a restaurant. So it would be a more family-friendly show for them to sponsor. <laughs> and then even though they strong-armed him into changing it, they still pulled the sponsorships and they just didn't find anybody else. But apparently Henry Mancini was pretty sure they canceled it to uh, give the prime Saturday night spot to Jack Benny. Ah. Oh, okay. That totally makes sense. And again... Blake Edwards was definitely, he had one foot out of the door of television. Yeah, I'm sure it was a combination of all of those elements. Yeah, because it's funny, you look on the uh, the Best of Mancini, you know, the Volume 1 Best of Mancini, and it's like, it like literally switches right over from television to film. <laughs> yeah. Like, no time. <laughs> and to, to be honest, you know, so much of jazz and private eye type stuff on the small screen happens in the wake of Peter Gunn that what was Mancini going to do repeat his formula no bigger and better and upper you know Peter Gunn is such an important album it was it got the Grammy for best album of 1959 so let's ask ourselves 
What are the other jazzy records of 1959? I don't know. Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Time Out by Dave Brubeck. Mingus Ah uh, Um. <laughs> yeah. So Mancini was like the jazz gateway drug. And, you know, television couldn't really contain him anymore. He, he had become such a big star that everybody had to move up. And when he moved up, boy, did he move up. I think he has more, you know, he, he has Grammys and Oscars for the same titles more than like anybody, I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's got like, what, 10 Grammys or something absurd like that? Yeah. I think Nora Jones was finally the person that broke his record. Household names. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but Henry Mancini was the superstar composer of the 60s. And then, you know, then Burt Backrack and then John Williams. You know, that's such a rarefied air in terms of, uh, you know, like if you had to walk up to somebody and say, play me something that sounds like John Williams, they would know how to do it. You know, I can tell you the technical ways they would do it, which wouldn't make sense to most people. But the elements are so in place. And it's the same with Backrack. You know when you're hearing Backrack. And it's the same with Mancini, is the, the, the style is so actualized and self-aware that you're really, you're dealing with a, with a very specific type of mastery. And, you know, who better? Because of the group that I have, the Hollywood Film Orchestra, we do a lot of Mancini's music. Because when you're going to do a concert of film noir music, Pretty much the first question is, what Henry Mancini are you doing? Yeah. He owns Essential. the style. It's like saying, oh, I have a Mercy Beat group. Yeah, what Beatles are you doing? It's not, are you doing any? You have to. Which ones? <laughs> yeah. And with that, I, I think we really should get into Floating Pad because it expresses such a different, more sinister mood than... Mr. Lucky does, which is just sounds like this elegant guy in a white dinner jacket walking down the street. Yeah, that's the establishing theme. Yeah, that's exactly. This is the like, hmm, this is not going to end well for somebody portion of the program. This is this is the really sinister sounding thing, but his way of making you feel pinhead music thing here is. The song is in 4-4, four, four, so it's bump, bottom, one, two, three, four. But it's got this feeling of 12 imposed over it. Now, what does that do? It makes everything feel tense and unsettled. And if you had just done that in any one layer of the music, it'd be pretty cool. But when you hear how Mancini stacks it up like a multi-layer cake, of different flavors and different textures. It really, again, points to the man's genius. So, floating pad. All right, let's do it. Side B, track one.
Yeah, you feel that tension almost immediately with the just just the percussion, as you mentioned, but it just keeps like creeping up bigger and bigger. Like the shadow coming behind you keeps growing. It's very vivid, which apparently, and we'll get into this when we discuss his biography a little bit, but apparently the effect that music could have on moving images is the reason he got into composition. He was just fascinated by that, and he could do it without the, he doesn't even need the visual. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's that's his mastery, and you'll notice he just keeps upping the ante you know the the trombones come and you go like oh okay the trombones are in now we we've established no now he's got muted trombones and you know muted low brass and it just keeps and then finally when the strings explode in the end we finally have something you're just like oh god this is just you know that's building for so so long <laughs> yeah but it doesn't feel like he's it doesn't feel like he's padding things everything is really super purposeful and when you finally get to that big thing where the strings explode playing the melody of the the second section at the end it's like yeah of course it was going to do that it was going to be so it had to end that way you know what i mean like he, he taking the inobvious and making it inevitable is really a mark of genius. And Mancini, again, I, I'm so occupied with his music so much of the time at this point in my life that every time I go back over these records, I almost think like, how come I didn't freak out over that the first time I heard it? Because it's so great. Like when we, when we had the, uh, the mics off while the track was playing. We were all just going, "Oh, this is so great!" Yeah, and it's like I'm I'm supposed to know things. I'm supposed to get this all in the first bounce, but there's so much there. It's like a, a, a an amazing meal that just keeps coming and coming, but you're not overly filled at the end of it. <laughs> I also want to point to something too. The guitar player on this stuff is a guy named Bob Bain, and Bob Bain was on like the theme from Bonanza and like every major. TV theme of the 50s and 60s. And I got to meet him a few years ago. I mean, he died maybe five or six years ago. And he knew who I was. And he said, oh, yeah, Skip, I'm glad I'm finally getting to meet you. You're getting all the gigs in 1995 that I invented in 1959. <laughs> <laughs> Good just, one. Just uh, flipped the numbers around there. Yeah, but it was just like, oh my god, I'm meeting the guy who played the Peter Gunn guitar line. Wow. And he was one of the guys that Mancini kept in kept in the harness well into the 70s. You know, he's on the Pink Panther. He's on all the ama- all the stuff that we really think of as being the stuff. He's the guy actually playing guitar behind Audrey Hepburn's vocal on uh, Moon River. He's like, yeah, I've never heard of you, but I know everything you've ever done. <laughs> Yeah, those are the people we, we like to highlight on this podcast. Yeah. Well, how about we get a little bit into Henry Mancini's background? He was born Enrico Nicola Mancini in Maple Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. He was born on April 16th, 1924. He was raised in West Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, which is near Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's Pittsburgh. His parents were Italian immigrants, and his father was a steel worker, as well as an amateur musician who taught Henry a few things. So at the age of eight, Henry picked up the piccolo, and uh, by at the age of 11, he went to see The Crusades, which featured the film score by Rudolf G. Kopp, and Henry was so taken with what the score was able to do, how it enhanced the picture that he decided right then and there, age 11, to pursue a career in film composition. Apparently his father, you know, as an amateur musician, thought he'd be better off being a teacher. But, you know, there's no stop. As we've learned with many of these artists, whose Classic parents, tale, yeah. their parents try to discourage them, especially the ones who... Who are musicians. musicians. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. yeah. There, he was destined to do it. There was no stopping him. And as he entered his teens, he learned a variety of instruments like uh, flute and piano. 
and he became enamored with jazz and big bands. He began writing his own arrangements and sent some to an up-and-coming band leader named Benny Goodman, who wrote him back and encouraged the young Mancini to pursue a career in music. And Henry enrolled at the Juilliard School of Music in New York in 1942. However, his studies were temporarily derailed with the onset of World War II, and he enrolled in the Army. He did, while enlisted, make connections with musicians being recruited by Glenn Miller, and after the war, Mancini was hired as an arranger and pianist by the reformed Glenn Miller Orchestra, led by American saxophonist Tex Beneke. Tex Beneke. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing is the guy who Mancini replaced was a piano player named Mark McIntyre. And Mark McIntyre was the piano player on all the Chipmunk stuff on Liberty. And on, uh, he was the father of and pianist for Patience and Prudence. There's your serious dollar bin stuff right there. <laughs> the the B-sides of the Chipmunk singles are all these really sort of cool little piano instrumentals. The best one is the flip side of the Chipmunk song, which is called That's Almost Good. And that's who Mancini replaced, was Mark McIntyre. Interesting. And, of course, Glenn Miller... For those who don't know, he was out of the picture. He had gone missing while flying to France from England in the war in December of 1944. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't actually realize that. I don't think I'd ever known that Glenn Miller did not survive. Yeah, Glenn Miller's like last band was called the Glenn Miller Army Air Force Band. There's a lot of speculation about his death because he had lost a lot of weight before he died, so... It's like, was, was he sick, this, that, the other thing, you know, and, and the fact that he was never found. Yeah. You know, like the, it's it's the grassy knoll conspiracy theory of Clorinda, Iowa, which is Glenn Miller's birth. Uh, yeah, I, I saw that there was like a whole rabbit hole to go down there when I was looking into that. And I was like, okay, well, I should. <laughs> yeah, of, of all the things, it's like, man, you know, I'm surprised there's not a picture of like, you know, Oswald hold, holding a you know, a newspaper with the death of Glenn Miller on it for all the conspiracies I've seen. <laughs> so Henry met his wife, Virginia, Ginny. She went by Ginny O'Connor. She had previously worked as a backup singer for Mel Torme and... No, she was in the Meltones. And the, the Meltones, not a background singer. The Meltones were a vocal group in the style of the Four Freshmen, like that type of thing. So it was a real jazz harmony group. And the bass singer in that group was Les Baxter. Oh, wow. Interesting. Which I think was one of the reasons Les always had a little bee in his bonnet about Henry Mancini, because Les and Ginny were, were close. Uh, you know, I think, I think they were an item during the Meltones years. And years later, years, years later, this had to be 1994 or thereabouts, Les and I went to eat breakfast at a Denny's in Palm Springs. And Ginny was there with Martha Tilton, who was Benny Goodman's singer, and LMA Morse. And you you could I, I mean I was just like, oh there there was a convention of girl singers from big bands that met every year. And we went and there were like these three at Denny's, and you could just tell there was like a really sort of warm feeling between Les and Ginny. It was really you know, old flames. Yeah, I think they really were because Les was not in World War II because he had flat feet. So he was he was with Torme during that time, and there's a couple of videos that you see, and he and Ginny are just looking at each other, and I think they were the first sort of, you know, important relationship to each other's lives. And she was sure, like, really, when I met her, just for the two minutes it was. She was so nice. She was just so gracious. Yeah, I watched a short documentary that they mostly interviewed Henry's family, and she was in there. She just passed away in the last year and a yeah, half. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she she was 97 years old, and she had joined, going way back to how her and, and Henry met, she had joined Tex Beneke's group as a vocalist. Uh, they hit it off. Her and Henry hit it off. They were married in 1947, remained together for the rest of their life. and. She, around uh, 1948, 
she actually founded the Society of Singers, which is a nonprofit which benefits the health and welfare of professional singers worldwide. So that's really cool. Exactly. And that's all the all the girl singers would have this convention every year in Palm Springs. And uh, if you accidentally walked into the right place, <laughs> you you could be waiting in line for a seat at Denny's behind Ginny O'Connell of the Modern Airs. That was the vocal group with the Miller Band. LMA Morse, who had been with Freddie Slack. And uh, Martha Tilton, who had been with Benny. Wow. Yeah. I, I almost, my jaw hit the ground when I realized who I was standing in front of. <laughs> I got to make it to Denny's more, guys. That's what I'm <laughs> learning from this. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> rock and roll Denny's on the Sunset Strip is now no longer. But that was where you would go and you would see Neil Diamond and Iggy Pop. Not at the same table, but that's where people would go after the gig to what they called rock and roll Denny's. So get to California, get your ass to Denny's. You'll see stars. <laughs> well, going back to Henry Mancini, he continued into the 1950s to develop his arranging skills, his composition skills, and he became the staff composer for Universal Film Studios. Well, one of what it was was they had like an apprenticeship program where they would bring in young composers and arrangers and kind of get them in the system, and they'd learn the ropes by doing sort of smaller jobs writing smaller cues and whatever. And in fact, the first Mancini film score is not really original music. He rearranged a bunch of Glenn Miller music for the Glenn Miller story. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the earliest. He would, over the course of the next six years, he scored over 100 films, including the Glenn Miller story, or as you said, he kind of rearranged things. The Creature from the Black Lagoon, it came from outer space. Tarantula, that's a, a, yeah. a favorite of mine. <laughs> the Benny Goodman story and uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, a classic. Well, that that should tell you just how low a priority Touch of Evil was. Was that the composer they're giving Orson Welles was the guy from Tarantula and the Benny Goodman story. He wasn't he wasn't even getting like Lynn Murray or somebody who was even known in television. They were sending him like the new guy. And, yeah. uh, you know, at, on the Hollywood Film Noir Orchestra record, we actually recorded Touch of Evil, and I had to write it down from, from the DVD. And by the time Henry Mancini got around to writing that score, you could tell he was ready for anything, because he had to write so many different kinds of music and do it beautifully, which he did. And the other cool thing about the Touch of Evil score is... It's, it's basically a bunch of what they call source cues, which is music that you hear coming off of a car radio or something like that. So it's a lot of fake rhythm and blues with guitar solos by Barney Kessel. So kind of a nice little Easter egg of a score there. <laughs> Henry left Universal in 1958 to become an independent composer and arranger, and shortly thereafter he was hired by writer, director, producer Blake Edwards, who we talked about before who he met on the universal lot, apparently. Yeah. And that was to score the television series, Peter, Peter Gunn. Gunn. And it's the beginning of a long collaborative relationship between the two, the Mr. Lucky that we're talking about today, music for Mr. Lucky closely followed Peter Gunn and their work continued together in films such as the Blake directed breakfast at Tiffany's little film. People might've heard of <laughs> uh, that one. Best music score and best original song for Moon River. The lyrics were by acclaimed writer Johnny Mercer. Now, you know the story about they gave that melody to several different lyricists. And Mercer was the one who came up with Moon River. They didn't even title it. And apparently, uh, this story is told so often that if it's not true, it's like, well, when the fact becomes a legend, print the legend. Yeah. But, Mancini and Mercer were at dinner somewhere, and somebody walked up to Mancini and said, You're Henry Mancini! You wrote Moon River! And Mercer, who was a really temperamental drunk, said, F you! He wrote, Ba da da! I wrote Moon River! Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cleaned up at the Academy Awards and 
the soundtrack also cleaned up at the the Grammys. I saw in the little short documentary that I found on YouTube, I think it was uh, Henry's wife, Jenny, or maybe it was uh, his daughter. One of them said that when they initially screened, they did the test screening of Breakfast at Tiffany's and the executives felt it was running too long and they needed to cut some things. And that was the first thing they wanted to cut was the Moon River sequence. And Audrey Hepburn, who wasn't necessarily someone who typically stood up and was, you know, vocal about things. She was like, over my dead body, are you cutting Moon River? Can you imagine that's the heart and soul of that film? No, that's like, you know, that's like when they wanted to cut, you know, 45 minutes out of The Godfather. Yeah, which they kept doing to Coppola even after The Godfather. I just was reading they cut 40 minutes out of The Outsiders. Yeah, they also cut a whole (laughs) bunch out of The Cotton Club. And the guy who manages the building where I live, Joe D'Alessandro, he was he played Lucky Luciano in Cotton Club, and he said when we first screened it, all, we we thought this was the most amazing thing ever because they did whole long music, you know the the music numbers were like kept intact, and he said it really made you feel like you were in the Cotton Club, and again it's just I, Cotton Club has always gotten a bad reputation because because people didn't get it and i think the reason they didn't get it is because it got cut down so much i was like dude didn't you guys learn after the godfather don't cut down coppola (laughs) he knows what he's doing he can tell a story (laughs) well we should get to another selection did we want to feature nightflower next uh yeah let's do nightflower because we've done the menacing stuff but this is one of his most beautiful this is like one of the most beautiful deep cuts all right nightflower side b track three Yeah, that one right there, when I was checking this album out for the first time, I you know, closed my eyes and could almost picture myself in like a sunken living room in the early 1960s with this album on the hi-fi. Just... Yeah, whenever you see those characters in a shag painting, <laughs> you, you know that's got to be what they're listening to. Yeah, some like Space Age Lounge. Yeah, is it that is Space Age Bachelor Pad music at its ultimate, very finest, most amazing perfected. 
And and the other thing is like that that Dick Nash trombone solo is, you know, every every great band leader has its has its like uh, key solos. Like Duke Ellington had Johnny Hodges, you know, Count Basie had Frank West and Frank Foster. And Mancini really had Dick Nash. Every time you hear one of those trombone leads, it's just it's unmistakable what you're supposed to what what your sense of the of the thing is supposed to be, if that makes like there, there's something so elegant and grown up about that style of trombone playing. You know, it's not gut bucket Dixieland and it's not like it's it's like no we're grown ups we drink martinis there's like no beer in the room when that's playing <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a classy feel yeah i think it's fitting that on the back of the jacket they have important notice this is a new orthophonic high fidelity recording designed for the phonograph of today or tomorrow played on your present machine it gives you the finest quality of reproduction played on a stereophonic machine it gives even more brilliant, true-to-life fidelity. You can buy today without fear of obsolescence in the future. <laughs> you know, and I took that to heart when I bought that record at the dollar bin at Book Trader at 5th and South in Philadelphia. I said, this might even be the only record I ever need. <laughs> yeah, just live with it. Well, Sean, if this isn't the only record that people need in their life, did you find some other recommended similar albums? For our listeners, just a few more to add. If one record's not enough for you, you could also swing down to your local dollar bin and dig up a copy of Peggy Lee's Latin Ala Lee from 1960. That version of I Enjoy Being a Girl is hilarious. <laughs> As we said, uh, Mancini followed this with uh, the kind of Latin version of the, the soundtrack, which reminded me of the, the work of Peggy Lee around this same time recently featured on a previous episode a different different album of hers from later on another amazing film score guy big band leader and a brilliant songwriter lalo schifrin in his album new fantasy from 1964 yeah that's a that's a that's a wonderful choice i i hope you're gonna mention neil hefty in here somewhere too <laughs> uh no but you can add one in right now if you want to Actually, get Basie plays Hefty because Neil Hefty. A lot of people know him. He wrote the theme for Batman, the theme from The Odd Couple, but he really came to a great deal of national prominence writing for the Count Basie band. And I think Mancini must have really loved the sound of that band because the way he chooses tempos and and his tendency towards like that warm lower brass sound and just a, a way of making sure everything in the arrangement is really clear. That that sounds to me like it has the influence of Basie all over it. Mm, that makes sense. Hefty is like one of those guys that comes in the wake of Mancini, along with Lalo Schifrin, and even John Barry to a certain point. John Barry, in a way, because of... If you think of 007 as an extension of Peter Gunn and Mr. Lucky, historically, it's like the refinement of the private eye. You understand where John John Barry becomes like the next guy after Mancini in terms of getting people with guns onto the screen in an elegant way. <laughs> yeah, I, I got some, for, definitely from Mr. Lucky, I got some proto-James Bond vibes. Totally. Oh, yeah, totally. And it, with, like, the, the gambling theme of the show, too, lots of James exactly. Bond parallels. Next up in the recommendations, a guy who didn't do as much work in soundtracks, but had that space age bachelor pad sound down to a science and also did a really good job of interpreting film score and popular songs in a more lounge setting. Martin Denny exotic sounds visit Broadway from 1960. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the Martin Denny stuff on Liberty is pretty indispensable. Yeah, you know, definitely. You can't, especially like exotica one, two and three primitiva and Martinique. Those are, you know, those are all masterpieces of a kind. And similarly, the, the Arthur Lyman records of that period, Taboo, Love for Sale, Leaves of Jazz, just absolutely wonderful. And his uh, his nephew, Alika Lyman, did an album called Lays of Jazz 2 that's just great. 
Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. And then I have a fourth kind of an honorable mention here. This is not necessarily a dollar bin record anymore, but you know, we talked about Henry Mancini having a strong jazz influence to his music. That was really important at this time because you know, in the fifties, for the most part, if you heard a jazz song in a score, it was usually to show like a down on their luck character or a more like yeah. seedy rundown scene in the movie. Like it was, it was supposed to my people. Yeah, exactly. It, was, it had a negative connotation and people like me and Cini were some of the first ones to use jazz in a wider range in a film score and kind of lifted out of this derogatory image, which reminded me of what is often considered the first full jazz score to a film by none other than Duke Ellington with the soundtrack to Anatomy of a Murder from 1959. Yeah, I'll give you the the thumbnail pinhead version of this is the first real modern jazz score is uh, Streetcar Named Desire by Alex North, which is a masterpiece. But the first one that's really done by a jazz arranger that's really jazz musicians, jazz arranger, and like the real the real deal but for the big screen is I Wanna Live, which was written by Johnny Mandel from this from the movie about with um, Susan Hayward. And it's about the first woman to go to the gas chamber in California. So there's no pretense towards any glamour here. You know, it, it, it ends with her. You you actually see her in the gas chamber. And it's a lot of the same musicians that are that Mancini used all the time, too. But there's nothing on that record you could hum that easily. Mm. So when Peter Gunn shows up, Mancini knows how to streamline it and turn it into a popular song language. And, of course, Mandel figured that out, too, because he wrote a few things like The Shadow of Your Smile. <laughs> he did okay for himself when he realized the value of writing a song. <laughs> and uh, he also went on to write the score for Caddyshack, which I think qualifies him for a certain type of immortality. Oh, yeah. Well, all fantastic stuff to dig further into sounds related to this record that we're featuring today. Uh, before we wrap things up, Skip, let's turn our focus on you as far as things that you have going on that you'd like to plug. Well, on March 30, the the new Joe Batan single hit the streets. Uh, it's a 2.45 set on the Steady Beat Records label. Uh, and that can you can find that at steadybeat.com. And I produced arranged, I produced it with my with Nick Ornelas, who's an amazing bass player and co-producer. And I wrote the arrangements, and it's Joe Batan and some of the other vocalists, like in the background, are Claudia Lanier and Big Sandy and just some really excellent people there and awesome my group the hollywood film noir orchestra which does specifically this type of music we do a whole bunch of mancini we also do the theme to i want to live and rafifi and all kinds of stuff oh yeah Ref love rafifi the hollywood film noir orchestra dark passages also available on Bandcamp. Uh, on the Killer Kern label, so go to just go to Bandcamp and type in Hollywood Film Noir Orchestra, N O I R C H E S T R A, Noir Orchestra. Very spelling bee of me. And please buy it because you know, <laughs> it's and it's got a really great album cover by Thomas Kimball. It's really, it's a very classy package, and uh, so far it's it's my favorite record that I've made. So I think that says something because. Just like David Sidara said the other night on uh, the Bill Maher show, we all just want to shred our early work. <laughs> That's why, as long as we keep making, we can always say, hey, I've made something better than I ever have before. Well, that's kind of my goal. I'm, I'm like looking at how many good years I have left because I'm going to be 58 this year. And I'm just crossing things off the bucket list. You know, I'm going to I'm going to stake out Randy Newman's house next up. <laughs> working with joe batan is pretty dang cool that that was pretty great chris montez and i are gearing up to do something together i always love chris montez i'm doing okay but you know i'm really hoping that before it's all over the the record that my best work is on is the one that has my name on the front of it it's a great great goal to have it's the only one i do have <laughs> but before i say anything else you know like i i before you uh, before you asked me to do this one, 
I was like really bent out of shape because I got beaten to talking about A Man Is Supposed to Cry, which is in my top favorite five albums of all time. So this one more reason I love being on the show is your taste reflects mine, maybe even to a fault. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's... Well, we appreciate that, and happy to have you back. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I, I look forward to this year's swag. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That'll be coming to our patrons very soon in in the month of May. We'll be... of which I am one, and you should be as well. Yeah, go over to Patreon.com/slash I'd Buy That Podcast and. Sign up today. It's too late to get in on the uh, season four swag, but if you get in now, you'll be eligible for season five swag Ooh. when that comes up next next year. You no, know, people sure people sure love the record tote bags. So true. But again, thank you, thank you for having me on, and thank you for letting me talk about Henry Mancini because you know his my whole life seems to have been something that happened after I heard Peter Gunn, if you know what I mean. Like, so much of the music I do, so much of my attitudes have been defined by this, and getting to run my mouth about it uh, is really, it's a great joy for me, and I really appreciate, you know, all of y'all. Yeah, we love having people on who, you know, are super passionate about uh, the thing they're talking about. So (laughs) it was... uh... You're a dead ringer for this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How noir of you. <laughs> Again, you know, I just, I, I love being on every time. The last time we spoke about Gino Vanelli, and we didn't touch on any of these topics. And heaven only knows what we'll do next. Probably someone with an Italian name, right? <laughs> Either that or a bluegrass record. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> well, Going back to Henry Mancini before we get out of here, unfortunately, he is no longer with us. He passed away in June of 1994 from pancreatic cancer. Actually, this episode will be airing right before what would have been his 99th birthday. Wow. Uh, but yeah, he, you know, he left his thumbprint all over. Yeah, our... all like 300 records of it. Uh, I will leave you with this thought. Long ago, I guess it was 1994 or so, I interviewed Curtis Mayfield. It it ran in Philadelphia City Paper. And I said, what was your first thought when when you got asked to write Superfly? He said, oh my God, now I'm going to be Henry Mancini. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. Going back over the history of Curtis Mayfield, there's the famous Jerry Butler version of Moon River with this great guitar line. It's Curtis Mayfield playing that guitar line. So, you know, you can go, yep, Henry Mancini even influenced Curtis Mayfield. And Curtis Mayfield's influence on black exploitation, and, and which means hip-hop. So Mancini's in there, not yeah. just as a sampling source, but also as an influence on Superfly, for crying out loud. Yeah, that is uh, incredible. Yeah, well... You know, as I said, I I look at Mancini and I just see like the most giant of the giants. And I look at Curtis Mayfield and I see only the most giant of the giants. And when you've got Curtis Mayfield pointing up at Henry Mancini, you go like, okay, if somebody's going to be the champion, it's that guy. <laughs> Move on up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, again, thank you, Skip, and uh, thank you, listeners. We're going to get out of here on, we were going to leave on the track Blue Satin. Did you have any final thoughts with this piece, Skip? It's just anytime Henry Mancini wanted to fuse blues and elegance, he he always hit a home run. This This is like really, in a way, that ultimate language where you hear the influence of Ellington and Basie, but that other thing that couldn't come from anything but Henry Mancini. Wonderful. All right, well, we're going to wrap things up here at I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. This is Skip Heller, and again, it's been an honor to be invited onto the show. This is really my favorite podcast. Oh, thanks, Skip. We'll, we'll have you back on again soon. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs>